0: Welcome everyone to the week 13 edition of Flight Deck, an inside look at the New York Jets. I'm your host, Rich Simini. I cover the Jets for ESPN. The NFL man, you gotta love it. Three weeks ago, we were talking about Adam Gase's job security after a brutal and embarrassing loss to the Dolphins. Now the Jets have a three game winning streak. The players believe the fan base is excited. Man, things just change so quickly in this league, which is what makes it so compelling. Anyway, we have a great show for this Thanksgiving week. We're going to try something different in the second quarter. We're actually going to talk to a few players with a nod toward the spirit of the holiday. And we'll talk to each player about uh, special football mentors in their lives. And I know you're going to enjoy that. Third quarter, we have the mailbag. And in the fourth quarter, some bittersweet. Thanksgiving memories on the Jets speed. For now, let's dive into this Jets resurgence. A couple of reasons for it. Number one, props to Adam Gase. Uh, over the last three games, his ability as a play caller has emerged. Now, he also kept the team together, uh, not fracturing when they were 1-7. in But I'm not going to go overboard on that aspect of it. I'm not going to call him the great unifier just yet. I just want to focus on the X's and O's and give him, like I said, the props for what he's done with the offense. They've had 11 touchdowns in the last three games. Consider they only had eight touchdowns in the first eight. Now, right now, in the last three weeks, they've averaged 29.3 offensive points a game. That's not including defense, just offensive points per game. That is third in the league behind Baltimore. In Tennessee, So that's impressive stuff. And I think what you have to like about it, he's been doing it without a consistent running game. They still haven't been able to get Le'Veon Bell going. So even without the, the, that consistent ground attack, they've been able to score those points. They're doing it with a short passing game mainly. And one of the things that hasn't been talked about that it needs to be mentioned, the Jets are doing, the receivers specifically, are doing a good job with yards after they catch the last three games. They're among the leaders in the league with 409 yards after the catch. And that, of course, is a function of Darnold's ball placement, a function of play design. So it's all coming together in that particular area. So, you know, good for Gase. He's doing it with a lot of moving parts on the offensive line. And it looks like this week against Cincinnati, they're going to have another right tackle. They'll have to go back to Brandon Shell because I do not believe Chuma Adoga, will play. He has a sprained knee. So uh, yeah, they're doing a good job. And more, the most important thing is Gase has figured out a way to make Sam Darnold comfortable. And that's big. And number two, speaking of the guy, Sam Darnold has really picked up his play over the last three games. He is the fourth rated passer in the NFL with a 117 rating. Each week becomes kind of a growing experience for him. And I look back at that Washington game He threw that horrible interception on the screen pass that he just sort of thrown away. And I don't think you were able to see this on TV, but on the coach's tape, he's walking off the field and with his right hand, he's just making a motion as if, you know, he would to dirt the football. He should have dirted the ball, which is meaning throw it into the ground, throw it away. And he walked up to the offensive guys immediately, got them together, said, that's on me. I'm better than that. That won't happen again. And so I know people, the coaches and teammates were really impressed by the way he reacted to that mistake. He didn't get down. He actually just got mad at himself and he took control of the sideline and the situation. And so that was, that was encouraging. And then of course he goes out against Oakland and plays really another terrific game. So San Arnold, a big reason as well. Number three, the offensive line. Still not dominant. I wouldn't call them dominant by any stretch, but they are holding up. Their pass protection has been better. And let's just be brutally honest here. Jonathan Harrison is better than Ryan Khalil. Tom Compton's been better than Brian Winters. And Alex Lewis has been better than Kalichio Semeli. So there are three interior guys now that are starting. Started the year as backups. I actually think they're playing better than the original starters. And that's a big reason why this offensive line has improved. And we cannot forget about the defense. The defense has been playing out of its mind. You know the stats. Number one against the run. And this this kind of blows my mind. In the last three games, which of course started with the, the Saquon Barkley game where they held him to one yard on 13 carries, which I'm still shaking my head at. But in the last three games... They have allowed only one running back one carry by a running back let me say to go over that 8-yard mark and that was this Sunday Josh Jacobs who got a 15-yard run which against this defense qualifies as a breakaway run. So when you think about that not allowing only allowing only one run uh over 8 yards in the last 3 games that is just crazy. And here's something that'll blow your mind. Can you name the Jets' leading tackler over the last three games? Jamal Adams, you're probably guessing? Not not true. James Burgess, middle linebacker, 25 tackles the last three games. This guy wasn't even on the 53-man roster at the start of the season. I think uh it's kudos to Greg Williams and the job he's done with this defense, playing with backups at inside linebacker, backups at cornerback. He's done an outstanding job. I think when I look back over the last 10 years or so, Greg Williams, what he's doing with the defense has to rank up there with some of the best coaching jobs I've seen by a coordinator in the last few years. I think Chan Gailey in 2015 did a great job with the offense. And Rex Ryan, even though he wasn't the coordinator, we all know he ran the defense in 2013, the year they went 8-8. Eight and eight, He did great stuff with the defense. It was their first year without Darrell Revis. And, of course, Rex did a great job in 9-10 and with the defense. But this stuff by Greg Williams, you have to put it up there. He has been outstanding. The defense has been outstanding. And the Jets are heading to Cincinnati on Sunday with a chance, crazy as it sounds, to win four in a row. That's the end of the first quarter. And welcome back to the second quarter. This is the Green Room. And as I mentioned, we're going to shake it up a little bit this week. I talked to several current players and asked them to identify either a loved one or an old coach, someone who is very instrumental in their football upbringing, kind of a Thanksgiving theme, if you will, thanking someone for helping them get to where they are. And the first one is Demarius Thomas. He started his career with the Broncos and he had the great fortune of coming up. That year as a rookie with two future Hall of Famers who showed him the ropes.
1: Um to answer the question, I would have to say Brian Dawkins and Champ Bailey. My rookie year I came in, you know, I came in, I was hurt, and then I got back on the field. I was kinda, you know, I re-injured myself. And uh just being around those guys saying how they became pros, you know, they actually kinda took me in and told me how to be a pro and showed me how to be a pro. And one of those things was, you know, making sure you take care of your body like it's your main priority. Like I remember, they got to, they told me I got to put great fuel into my body. I got to do extra into my body because I wasn't a college kid no more. And from that day on, and you know, being around those guys, the couple of years I was with, when I got healthy, I stayed healthy for so long, and it kind of got me to where I am right now, and, and, to, and you know, in my career today. And my, my main thing is. I'm gonna be able to perform like I want to. I gotta make sure I take care of my body internally and you know externally. And um, I can take my hats off to Brian Dawkins and Champ Bailey because they, they kind of showed me the ropes. You know they they when they when I needed to talk to them, even when I needed to talk to them about something, they asked questions for me that way also. Um, in the league and outside the league, you know when they retired, same thing. They always was there for me and I you know I appreciate them guys.
0: Center Jonathan Harrison goes back to his days at South Lake High School in Florida and later at the University of Florida where he played his college ball. You know, extra thankful
2: for one, my high school coach, uh, Coach Walter Banks. The online coach was uh, Rick Ringer at the time. But, uh, Coach, between the two of them, they kind of broke me out of the, the, the passive shell, like the more reserved shell that I was in, and kind of brought a little toughness out of me. They saw in me, you know, what a lot of other people didn't see. And, um, so, you know, they were in my corner and they kind of got me going in the right direction. Um, you know, thankful, thankful for, for all my college online line coaches that, that I went through. But, you know, my biggest, uh, one of my biggest mentors for sure is, uh, my trainer now to this day, uh, LaCharles Bentley, um, played offensive line in the NFL, played center, center in the NFL. And, um, you know, unfortunately his career got sh- cut short with an injury but then, you know, he took all of his knowledge and his experience and put it into passing it on to, you know, younger generations. And, and he really took me under his wing, and he really got me going in the right direction. You know, I was thinking of football as, you know, A, B, and C. And then, you know, meeting with him, he's like, no, football's actually D, E, and F. And, and it just completely changed my perspective and changed my approach to the game. And, you know, very thankful for, for him actually reaching out to me coming out of college, you know, or
0: else I would have never found him I'd never be in the place I am today. Special teams captain Rantes Miles credited his coach at Woodland Hills High School in Pittsburgh, where, by the way, one of his teammates was named Rob Gronkowski. He also cited one of his coaches at California University, which is a Division two school in Pennsylvania.
3: I would say there's two, you know, they both happen to be like my defensive backs coach. Um, my high school defensive back coach, Coach Samson, and um, uh, my college coach coach cole you know dave cole um <clears throat> high school wise man he was a guy that like i never felt like i was like nothing like i had to make a play or something wouldn't be good enough he never smiled he never he never like physically told me like man you're great you're gonna be great and um i remember my senior year i was leaving out and like he like gave me a big hug and like man it was like i wanted to coach you and. Everything that I was trying to get from him the Three, four years of high school I didn't get until I left And I thank him because that taught me How to, you know, keep working And don't worry about what things are He made me always feel like I could be better Without even having to say it mm-hmm. Not that he didn't say good job or good play But he basically, the way he treated me I felt like I gotta, I gotta do more mm-hmm. He kept me on my toes My college coach, Coach Cole Everybody else can make a mistake when it fail I couldn't make a mistake. The pressure he put on me early, uh, even teaching me how to play safety, because I I was just raw, I was just not a real-life safety, but um, the biggest thing with Cole is he taught me how to be a man off the field and a a father and how to love your kids and everything, and just explaining that graduating college would be more beneficial for me than going to the NFL if it didn't work out, and he's one of the
0: reasons why I did stay and get my degree, so... Now we have nose tackle Steve McClendon, who I think could wind up on some other players' list in the coming years. He's that type of mentor to the young players in the Jets' locker room. But anyway, he goes back to his Pittsburgh days and mentions a couple of his old position coaches, Brenton Buckner and John Mitchell, and the recent head coach of the Jets, Todd Bowles.
2: Start off at uh, Brenton Butler. Um he played for Coach John Mitchell, which I played up under John Mitchell as well. So John Mitchell was my D line coach in Pittsburgh that coach Breston Butler, which is the D line for him. So I ended up meeting Breston uh Coach Butler, who's the defensive line coach for the Oakland Raiders. Now and um he taught me so much um about the game. And um he's always telling me about about Coach Bowles. So when I first got here, I was able To meet Coach Bowles for the first time. And um, everything that he was telling me was the same stuff Coach Bowles was telling me about how to play the game and how to play the game from the neck up. So it was was, was basically those three guys, man
0: Um, um, John Mitchell, President Butler, and uh, Coach Bowles. And last but not least is Brandon Copeland. And this is my favorite one. Brandon cites his grandfather. His grandfather was Roy Hilton. He played 11 years in the NFL, most of that time with the Baltimore Colts. He actually played in Super Bowl three against the Jets. Uh, Unfortunately, Roy Hilton died in January at the age of 75, but he obviously made a very strong impression on Brandon Copeland.
4: My mentor would be my grandfather. He played in the NFL for 11 years. He, uh, obviously besides having blood and and caring more about me off the field than on the field, um, just the way he approached, uh, myself and teaching me to love the sport and teaching me instincts within the sport, um, I think that it was second to none. Clearly, growing up as a young child, you'd kind of take having that presence for granted. Um, it wasn't something where I went over his house and he was like, hey, let's get in the backyard and, and do this, this, and this. It was just something on the way home from a game he might, you know, share with me a tip or two that he used to do uh, against the Jets, <laughs> for example, you know. Uh, but but he might share a tip or two that, that might get me out of a, a different a difficult situation, you know. And this was in middle school or in high school, and, and it's just funny seeing years and years later how the stuff that he's taught me or embedded in me early um, have stuck with me to this day and and, you know one of my old coaches used to say you know football doesn't change right Mm -hmm. the fundamentals of the game certain things stay the same you know you might see some different plays from Mm -hmm. time to time but they're ultimately getting to the same goal and and I think um, as I talk about them now it, it, makes me realize the same techniques and the same things that I was using as a fourth grade kid or that he was trying to teach me as in fourth grade uh, are the same things that I'm using now just at a different level and a quicker, quicker pace, so. Baltimore Colts, right? Baltimore Colts, yeah. Right. Baltimore Colts for nine years, one year with the Giants and one year with the Falcons, so.
0: Did he play in the Super Bowl against the Jets? He they?
4: did, he did. Yeah. He played in that Super Bowl and, uh, he
0: was as shocked as, uh, I guess the world was at that. Day. Yeah, of course the Jets are still celebrating that 50 years later, but uh, that, they were heavily favored in that game, as you know.
4: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you know, I know he, he's mentioned that game to me, and that was actually um, my grandfather passed away on January 6th of this past year. But the last game that he came to of mine was the the 50 year anniversary of the Jets first coach last year. So right. you know, this is a um, memory in my heart forever.
0: Welcome back. This is the third quarter. It's mailbag time. Let's start it off with at Mikey WM free. He has a question regarding Ryan Griffin's new contract. Do you see this as a sign that the Jets want to incorporate more two tight end formations or is this a sign that the Jets are very worried about Chris Herndon's injury issues? Uh, Mikey, I don't think it's either. Uh, I think they just saw this as an opportunity. To lock up a good player who clearly has bought into the program, a good culture guy, if you will. And it's not an exorbitant contract. I do not have the specific numbers yet, but it's a three year deal. I believe it's about four million guaranteed. So it doesn't, it's not a cap breaker. And so all of those reasons you mentioned are legitimate, but I think it's just because they wanted to sign up a good player who was about to hit free agency. Next question, at Mogeffs. Uh This seems to me that Greg Williams has adjusted to the new corners by playing a lot more zone and blitzing less. Any truth to that? This is a very perceptive observation because that is exactly what's been going on. Let me throw out a couple of numbers for you. In the first nine games, first nine weeks of the season, The Jets were fourth in the league in blitzing percentage. 41% of the time on passing downs, they were blitzing, which is a very Greg Williams-like number. But in the last three weeks, they've been 30th in the league in blitzing, down to 20%, a very un-Greg Williams-like number. He doesn't want to leave his corners who are untested out on an island, so he's protecting them a little bit more sending less rushers, a good adjustment that so far seems to be working. Good question there. Uh, next one from at Matt Romano 19 What type of return would the Jets get on Le'Veon Bell? If the offense continues to click the way it has been, do you think Joe Douglas would be more inclined to keep him around? Hard question to say, Matt. You know, I wrote about a week or so ago that the, I think the Jets will try to trade Le'Veon in the offseason. I believe they still will. What could he bring back? It's really contingent on his contract because the contract is going to be difficult to move. It's $13 guaranteed. I think the Jets would have to eat a portion of that for a team to take him. How much they get in return depends on how much they eat. It's almost like a sliding scale. I would think they could get something in the middle rounds for him, maybe somewhere from a four to a five. Maybe it could go up to a three if they eat a little bit more of the salary. So there's really a lot of mitigating factors there with Le'Veon Bell. Next question comes from John at John Perrone 28. What are the odds of them locking up Jordan Jenkins and Robbie Anderson before the end of the season and maybe extending Jamal Adams? Well, on the Adams one, they can't because according to the CBA, a player you cannot start renegotiation talks uh with a player until he's completed his third season. So the Jets would have to wait until the season ends to start doing stuff with Jamal. I think that'll be a hot storyline in the off season. As for Jenkins and Anderson, I do not see them uh re upping with Robbie before the season ends. I'm not even sure if they're gonna do it after the season before free agency. I think it'll depend on his number. Jordan Jenkins, yes. They definitely want to keep him. There's a strong interest there. I think they'd like to get that done the sooner the better. And next question comes from at sun Moonrise 31. The offensive line looks much improved in recent games with the signing of Ryan Khalil. The Jets biggest mistake of the season was starting him at center. The reason that will cost them a playoffs consideration. Well, um, no, I mean Ryan Khalil playing center for half a season is not the reason the Jets are going to miss the playoffs. But yes, it was a mistake. In retrospect, it was a mistake. I think Jonathan Harrison is better, and Joe Douglas. You know, and I did not criticize the move at the time. I thought it was a, a worthwhile gamble. They signed him at a retirement, gave him eight million dollars, most of it guaranteed, and I think they just miscalculated one on the impact it would have on the chemistry of the line because it was not good and two just the type of physical shape he was in Khalil was not in shape when he came to training camp he couldn't practice for a while he could not even play in the preseason so I think probably a learning lesson there for Joe Douglas next question comes from at Israel DMS 7 a little off topic But that final year that Darrell Rivas was with the team, did he have something against you? I remember that every time you asked a question, he'd be like, next question. Yeah, this is really off topic, Israel, but I'm going to answer it because I think the fans should know some of the background that goes into relationships with players and and reporters. And yes, you're absolutely correct. Uh, We did have an issue. I think it was more of an on and off issue through most of his career, but it really flared up toward the end in his final season for whatever reason. Obviously, something I wrote he didn't like. I thought he behaved behaved somewhat immaturely for a guy of his stature. But um, yes, we did have some, uh, let's just say we had a couple of issues that uh, maybe a little sparks flew on an occasion or two. Uh, next question from at NCDONR. What do you believe the turning point for Sam Darnold? What do you believe was the turning point for Sam Darnold and the offense? I know he has taken more of a proactive stance with Gase, but what else? Thanks and happy Thanksgiving and happy Thanksgiving to you too, NCD. Um, Yeah, I think that was kind of the turning point. I know this has been written in many different places and maybe misconstrued about the – the meeting he had with Gase, it was after the Jacksonville game. Obviously, a bad game for Darnold. He came into the office and they started talking about changes that he'd like to make in the offense. You know, some of the things that he liked they were doing, some of the things that he didn't like. He was not angry. I think maybe people got the wrong idea that Darnold walked in and started making demands. That was not the case. This was a very civil conversation, and I think the news of it was it was that Darnold. It was a little out of character for him. He's kind of a pleaser. You know, he doesn't like to create, you know, conflict. He goes along with what the coaches say, and it's because he's a young player, and he doesn't really know the offense that well. But at that point, he felt that he knew it well enough to where he could come in and tell his coach, hey, look, some of the things here I'd like to eliminate from the game plan and some other things I want to do more of. So that's all it was, and I do think that was – a big turning point because his play definitely took uh on the upswing since then. And our last question comes from at sports underscore FI three following up on the talk, which we talked about. Do you think more credit is due from Sam Darnold for stepping up to state what he needed from the coach or for Gase for finally making the necessary changes for the team's success? You know, I think it's both. You know, this happened organically. You know, I don't think it was a set meeting. You know, these guys meet all the time in Adam Gase's office, all the time. So I think it was just a meeting of the minds. And you talk to Adam Gase about it, he was thrilled that Darnold took this approach this more proactive approach because that's what he wants from his quarterbacks you're talking about a coach who spent some time with Peyton Manning in Denver and let me tell you Peyton ran the show so Adam has seen both sides of it he's seen the guy who runs the show like Peyton Manning and he's seen sort of a younger rookie trying to find his way in Sam Darnold so I think Adam likes when Sam creates that give and take so far it's been working I think it's healthy I think they both should get credit. That is the end of the third quarter. This is Thanksgiving week. So I wanted to share a couple of personal reflections of covering the Jets around Thanksgiving. There always seems to be something memorable happening. Uh, not all of it good. This is definitely some bittersweet stuff. But to me, I always think of Dennis Byrd on Thanksgiving. It was Thanksgiving weekend in 1992. Where Dennis broke his neck against the Kansas City Chiefs. He collided with teammate Scott Mercero, and Dennis was, uh, tragically, you know, temporarily paralyzed for most of his life, which ended a few years ago in a car accident in Oklahoma. But the weird thing about that, and let me just say that was probably the most difficult sporting event I had to cover, but the weird thing on Thanksgiving Day, I had started hearing rumors that Al Thune was getting ready to retire. So I started calling some sources around the team and I called Dennis at home and he was such a nice guy that he didn't even mind that I called him on Thanksgiving Day. I happened to call him during the Detroit Lions football game. He was watching the game and he noted that particular day that the Lions were honoring Mike Utley who one of their former players, an offensive lineman who had a tragic spinal cord injury and was in a wheelchair, and they were honoring Utley. And I just remember talking to Dennis over the phone, just him lamenting Utley's plight and how it was so sad and tragic that he was in that situation from a football injury. And then three days later, the same thing happens to Dennis. It was absolutely gut-wrenching. And, uh, you know, a difficult, difficult time. And Altoon did end up retiring the next day. It was Friday. And then, of course, Dennis on Sunday with the injury. Just a really bad, bad memory from covering the Jets. And then in 94, we have what is commonly known as the fake spike game. Dan Marino, it was the Sunday after Thanksgiving. The Jets were a chance to get into a first place tie with the Dolphins. And of course, Marino with that fake spike which just really sent the team into basically a a two-and-a-half-year tailspin. No exaggeration. You can look it up. 95, Thanksgiving Day, Leon Hess makes his annual appearance to Jets camp. The team is 2-9 and at the time under Rich Kotite. So I was not there, and I'll explain why in a second, but Hess gathers the team up on the practice field. Some of my reporting friends we're eavesdropping and Hess delivers this fiery speech in which he tries to give them a pep talk to finish the season on a high note. He goes, let's go out and show them we're not a bunch of horses asses. So it becomes the back page on all the New York tabloids the next day. And actually the Jets for one week, were not a bunch of horses asses because they went out and beat Seattle. And that was their last win of the year. They finished three and 13. I was in the hospital my wife gave birth that day on Thanksgiving to my son, Matt. It was our first child. So I did not make that trip to Seattle. I stayed home. Um, haven't missed many games in my Jet career of covering them, but that was one of them. And stayed home on a very happy occasion. So I missed that uh, particular victory. But the next week, when I showed up to cover the Jets and the Rams at the old Giants Stadium... Much to my surprise, I walked in and there was a huge message before the game on the scoreboard from the Jets congratulating me on the birth of Matt. And we they not only put it on the scoreboard, but they took a picture of it. They gave it to me as a gift. The old PR director, Frank Ramos, shout out to him for that. They gave me that and that photo still stands on the wall, sits on the wall in my son Matt's room. Uh, his vacant room, he's old now and he's out of the house doing his thing, but the picture still's there and I'll always remember the Jets for that. So some bitter, me- uh, sweet memories on Thanksgiving. When you're around the Jets, it always seems to be bittersweet. But anyway, thanks for checking in this week on Flight Deck. I want to wish everyone a happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the football. Uh, we got Jets and Bengals on Sunday. I am Picking the Jets this week, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing because I've been going against them and they've been winning. Now I'm going with them. They will beat the 0-11 Bengals who are starting Andy Dalton once again. I want to thank Jeff Scopin, my producer, for putting this all together. Thanks for all the players for participating in my second quarter segment. They did a great job on that. Stay with us. we got more stuff coming up on Flight Deck for the remainder of the season. And just remember, when in doubt, don't punt. Go for it.